I hope you brought a Bible with you this morning. If you did, here we go back into the book of Daniel. Last time we looked at Daniel, I think it was about a month ago, we found Daniel praying for his nation, praying for his people, confessing sin, his and the nation's corporately, pleading for God's mercy. One of the things you you become aware of as you read through and study the book of Daniel is that he was, in fact, a passionate man of prayer. He feared God's wrath, but he hungered, he longed for God's mercy and grace. He knew God had a plan. God kept showing him little bits and pieces. But he wasn't sure what that plan was until God decided to reveal it to him. And this morning, we are going to jump into the middle of what I believe is probably the most difficult portion of the book of Daniel, and that is in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Daniel has a visit from an angel, not his first, certainly I don't believe his last, But this angel came to show Daniel what it was going to look like, what was going to happen when God undertook to restore Israel and to bring about the end of all things. I know that there are many different interpretations of this passage of Scripture, and I know that there is a lot of discussion. There are a lot of people who've just thrown up their hands and said, I don't get it, I quit. And I don't know which group you fall into or where your interpretation might be, but this morning I just want us to let the Word of God speak for itself. There is one place where we are going to have to engage in a little bit of that interpretive work, but outside of that, I want you to focus on the main things, and I want you to stay focused there. And I know you're going to say, well, I'm not sure what the main thing is. Before we get to the end, you'll know what the main thing is, all right? If you have found that passage, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, if you're there, if you can and will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 20, we read, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel The man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for righteousness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. 
And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I thank you for your word, and I just ask you to bless its reading. Father, I know that much of what we've just read is is difficult to understand, difficult to, to get our brains wrapped around, but we ask you this morning for insight, for wisdom. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us utterance, would give us truth, would help us to understand your ways. Father, as you spoke to Daniel so long ago, I pray that you would speak to us. But Father, above everything else, I pray that you would not allow us to get sidetracked into the things that the world says are most important, but rather to focus on the nugget of absolute truth that you have placed in the midst of this passage. That we would tie our lives, our souls, and our eternity to that nugget. Father, speak to us. Teach us your truth. We're ready to listen. But we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. By the time we reach this place in Daniel, Daniel is probably between 80 and 90 years old. The years have passed and built upon him. He's a godly man. He has held his faith. He has been true to what God has called him to do. He also was a student of the Word of God, as we have seen displayed several times in these writings. And I believe that Daniel knew from the writings of Jeremiah who had gone before him that this period of exile they were engaged in was to last 70 years. He recognized that that time period was drawing to a close. As he looked at himself, he realized he probably wasn't going back to Israel. He probably was not going to make the journey back to Jerusalem and see it rebuilt Because the years had accumulated upon him and and more than likely the end of his life would occur before the decree to go back. But still he was true to the word of God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we find the record of the temple in Jerusalem being dedicated. And there in that dedicatory prayer, Solomon challenged God's people. That when or if they were carried into exile as a result of their sin, that they would call out to God for forgiveness, that they would cry out to Him in repentance and turning in their prayers. And Daniel was fulfilling that instruction. As we started this reading in verse 20, he says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. He is engaged in doing what Israel had been instructed to do by King Solomon when the temple was dedicated. He knew the nation was about to experience a season of rebirth. 
And, and I want us to just kind of pick up what's going on in this place and move forward from there as we take these verses apart this morning. And we have to begin with Daniel pleading and praying for the deliverance of Israel. That's what his heart was about. He longed for God to hear his prayer and answer his prayer. Have you ever found yourself in a time of fervent, sincere prayer where your heart was breaking over a matter and you just couldn't seem to turn loose of it? It consumed you from your waking moment until your time when you lay down at night. And, it, and even during the middle of the night, perhaps, when you woke up, if you rolled over and, and, and your mind came to a moment of clarity, that matter was right there. Have you ever had a time like that? I think that's where Daniel was at. This was consuming his heart. It was consuming his mind. Everything about him. He longed to be heard by God and he longed to see God move in a mighty way in order to restore the nation of Israel. And I'm, I'm, I'm moved every time I read this to see Daniel's active confession. I love what it says here about Daniel as he prayed. Confessing my sin. That's where he started. My sin and the sin of my people, Israel. How easy is it for us to talk to God and say, God, if you could just do something about those folks. If you could just straighten out those people that don't see things the way I see them. If you could just fix those people who aren't doing the things the way we think they ought to be done. It's so easy to point our fingers and not bother to look at ourselves, but that's not at all what Daniel did. The Daniel says, while I was confessing my sin, oh, and the sin of the people, Israel, our nation, he was a confessor and an intercessor. I, I wish that we were as driven to prayer as Daniel seems to be. I wish that we were praying and interceding for ourselves and for our nation the way that Daniel did. What a difference it might make if God's people had this type of a heart and became this type of a people of prayer. Interceding. I, I've often asked myself, what has to happen? What type of a crisis do we have to see or experience in order to begin to pray like this? What is it that has to occur in the life of our nation for us to fall on our knees before the Almighty and stay there? For Daniel, it was the awareness that God's people were in captivity, that the city of God lay desolate. That the house of God had been destroyed and torn down. It wasn't at all about him and it wasn't at all really about Israel. It was about the honor and the glory of God. And he was desperate. And you know, I, I love that. When I thought that, I thought, you know, that's really what it comes down to. It, it's when desperation sets in that we're ready for deliverance. We are not ready for God to deliver us until we reach a point of desperation where we realize that without him, we have no hope. Have you ever been truly desperate to experience the hand of God, to experience his moving in your life or, or in your home or in your church or in your workplace or, or in your community? Have you ever been that desperate? Man, Daniel was. I can't imagine how we could sit here today and say, no, never felt that. I just look around me today. Growing division among people. Incivility. The, the inability to even speak to one another in civil discourse. Public attacks on anybody and everybody. Leadership particularly. 
Verbal attacks on our nation. Wars all over the globe. Nation against nation. What does it take for us to become desperate? Daniel was a desperate man. And he was going to pray no matter what. Listen, he had already proven that earlier in the book. When he was told, if you continue to pray like this, you're going to get fed to the lions. What did he do? He went back to his room and did exactly as he had always been in the habit of doing. He opened the windows facing toward Jerusalem, got on his knees, and began to cry out to God. He said, well, he's still here. You said he was going to get fed to the lions. He was. And for the first time in history, God created vegetarian lions for one night. And he delivered his man and brought his man through so that he could continue to impact the culture and the society where he lived. So here's Daniel, and he's praying. He's pouring out his heart to God. And in verse 21, he says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice, the arrival of God's messenger. About the time of the evening sacrifice, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's, it's mid-afternoon. It's time for the sacrifice to be made in the temple. Even though the temple has been destroyed, even though he's not living anywhere close to Jerusalem, he still tells time by the temple clock. Time for the afternoon sacrifice. Here he comes while I was still in prayer. Listen, God is not early and God is not late. God is always right on time. We have a tendency to borrow trouble. We, we have a tendency to look ahead and expect answers before answers are needed. To try to involve ourselves in things that haven't even come to pass yet. Daniel says it's not like that. It's while I was praying. It was in that moment. You see, God is always on time. And in that moment of prayer, uh, Daniel's having communion with God. He's in communication with God. And here comes Gabriel. The angel, the man, the messenger of God. Gabriel, whom Daniel had seen earlier. I love the way he says it, flying in to meet him. About three o'clock in the afternoon. And bringing a message of encouragement, a message of hope. And the angel announced his purpose for coming. Got your Bible? Look at verses 22 and 23. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel... I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Daniel, I want you to understand, God does not want you to be ignorant about what he's doing. God doesn't want you to be in the dark, not understanding what's happening. Daniel, I have come to give you insight, to give you understanding, to help you get a hold of everything that's happening and is going to happen. In verse 23, I love this verse. As soon as you began to pray... Just let that soak for a minute. As soon as you began to pray. Is it soaking in? As soon as you began to pray. Man, I'm going to tell you what. If I had a dollar for every time I've had Christian people tell me, Well, preacher, we've done everything. We don't know what else to do but pray. I could retire and never have to worry about money. If I had a donut for every time I heard that, I'd weigh 450 pounds. 
As soon as you began to, that shouldn't be our last resort, folks. That ought to be our first call. If you want to know what's going on, if you want to know what God's plan is, if you want to see God's power unleashed, if you want to see God work and move and do things in a mighty and spectacular fashion, quit doing everything else and trying to do everything yourself and cry out to Him. As soon as you began to pray, when you got down on your knees and you said, Oh God, at that moment, in that instant, as soon as you began to pray, look at what it says. An answer was given. Preacher, I just don't know what God's doing. You may as well just say, I mean, preacher, I refuse to pray about this. Because as soon as you begin to pray, an answer is given. You may have to learn how to discern it. You may have to learn how to hear it. You may have to learn how to understand it. You may have to learn how to embrace it if it's not what you want to hear or it's not the answer you're looking for. It's not the answer you want. But when you begin to pray, God hears. When God's children begin to pray, God hears and he has an answer. And here is the messenger of God saying, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. And here I am. I've come to tell you. I've, I've come to lay it all out for you. Because here's the reality. If God just dropped on you what I'm about to drop on you, you wouldn't get it. It's too confusing for you. So I'm, I'm here to give you an explanation. I'm here to help you get Why on earth? Why on earth would Daniel get this answer? Gabriel told him. Did you look at verse 23? For you are highly esteemed. God knows you. Daniel, you belong to the most high God. God knows you and he loves you. Friend, I want you to hear that this morning. If you belong to the most high God, he knows you. And he loves you. You are highly esteemed. He has chosen you as his own. He has adopted you into his family. He has engrafted you into the vine. He has called you his own, made you his child, and he has a future for you. And he's preparing that future even while we're sitting here. You are highly esteemed. So was Daniel. Consider the message. And understand the vision. Friends, let me just say something to you in, in, in short and quick and in brief. But even in the darkest days, don't give up hope. It is so easy to get discouraged looking around at the world. I'm, I'm encouraging. If you are a child of the living God, don't look at this world. Look beyond this world. Realize what you have is not here. It's beyond this place. And even though it may look dark and it may look gloomy and things may look difficult and trying, don't give up hope. Keep your eyes fixed on the one who is in control of all things. Gabriel tells Daniel, therefore consider the message and understand the vision. Don't get hooked up in what's right now, Daniel. I want you to see what's coming. 
And then he begins to uncover God's timetable. The mystery of the seven, seventy sevens. This is one of the most puzzling and abused prophecies in Scripture. And I can see some of you leaning forward and rubbing your hands. You say, oh man, we got him now. <laughs> no, you don't. Let's just look at what it says, shall we? Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy-sevens. The seventy-sevens are groups of years. Seventy weeks of years. Okay? That's all that is. Now, again, I want to point out to you, because I know that there are always people who, who want to look at me and say, Preacher, you spend too much time in the Old Testament. I don't think I do, but, but if I do, let me just help you to understand something. The Old Testament is the precursor to the New Testament. And if you don't get the Old Testament, you're not really going to understand the New Testament. And even though we may not understand everything in full, we can certainly give it our best effort, right? And I want you to understand that when we look into the Old Testament, it's not just because we're looking at history or we're looking at poetry or we're looking at wisdom. I'm looking for Jesus. And Jesus is all over the Old Testament. And you're going to find out he is right here in these 77s. The fulfillment of God's great plan for the ages is right on track. Even in Daniel's time, it was. And so I want us to, to look at these 77s. By the way, just quick math. I'm not a numbers guy, okay? So please understand, it took me a while to sit down and figure all of this out and, and put this all into to sequence. But 77s, that's 490. So we're talking about 490 years, okay? And people say, well, the 490 years has already come and gone from the time of Daniel. Yeah, it has. But let's dig our way through that, shall we? First off, I want you to understand that Daniel was given a preview of God's plan of redemption. And there are multiple interpretations, I know, of these 77s, but I'm going to explain it to you the best way I understand it this morning. You may walk out the door and say, that dude's nuts. It's okay. I've been called worse. And if I'm, if I'm wrong, then God will correct me. If I'm wrong, I honestly believe God's going to laugh at me when I get there and say, well, you gave it a shot, kid. And that's going where we're going to wind up, all right? But verse 24, where we begin, reveals that this period of time is here so that God can deal with sin. That's what it's about. It's dealing with sin. It's dealing with man's broken condition. It's dealing with our sinfulness and our need for a Redeemer, our need for a Savior, our need for redemption. That's what this whole period is about. So what do you mean? Look at verse 24. Go on with me. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Six keys to dealing with man's broken, sinful condition that has separated him from God and made him lost, as we would call it. Now, 
I'm getting ready to put something on the wall, and y'all are, I, I know you're all going to quit looking at me. That's okay. But there's no way I could make sense of it. I had to get somebody to help me, and so I got somebody to help me, all right? And, and it's just a simple chart to help me understand it. Now I'm going to just kind of walk through this, okay? The first seven sevens, 49 years. The first 49 years have to do with the command to rebuild Jerusalem. And most scholars will agree that the date that we're working for from is 445 B.C. when the decree was made to Nehemiah that he would go back and rebuild the walls and they would rebuild the city and they would begin the rebuilding of the temple. Now, that's just kind of the accepted date. If you go from that date, 445, and you jump forward from the completion of that time period, You have 483 years forward, and guess what happens next? That's right about the time period when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The arrival of the anointed. Daniel talks here about this arrival. Let's go back. Verse 25. Don't take my word for any of this. No one understands this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens. Okay, so we've got, we, we've got that first week. Jerusalem is being rebuilt. Now, that doesn't start at the moment of this vision that Daniel has. That starts when the decree was made and Nehemiah was sent back in order to accomplish this purpose. All right? It will be re- rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. I would say it was times of trouble. You ever read the book of Nehemiah? These people had opposition at every turn as they were trying to rebuild Jerusalem and put it back together. The nations around them, the peoples around them came against them time and time and time again. After the 62 sevens, that's that 483 years that follow the completion of the rebuilding. After the conclusion of that, Messiah arrives. Now, it's talking about when he was made known to the nations as Messiah. He comes into the city on the triumphal entry at the end of his ministry time. And he is the anointed one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is the Son of God. Everyone knew who he was. But we also know the story, don't we? The anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Jesus died. He was, according to the Old Testament, according to the Proverbs, and according to the prophets, he was cut off from among the living. How interesting that these same words are found here in Daniel. He will be cut off. He was cut off from the land of the living. And then after that, we read in verse 26... The people of the ruler who will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. After Jesus' death, Israel struggled. They had struggled before, but now it was a renewed struggle and it was a more desperate struggle. And it wasn't but just a few decades after Jesus' death in 70 AD that the Romans, under the leadership of Titus, Virtually destroyed the city of Jerusalem, wrecked the temple, tore it down, 
and left it in a mess. Now, if you're doing the math, you're saying, wait a minute. That's only 69 weeks. So if there were 70, why hasn't everything come to an end yet? Because there was more than seven years from 70, there was. Now, I want you to listen to me. Verse 26 concludes telling us this. After the city's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. When it says wars will continue, I keep hearing in the back of my mind a fellow who had already said there will be wars and rumors of wars all the way up to the end. Jesus had told us that that was going to happen. The reality is when you read about these wars and you read about these desolations that have been predicted, have been foretold, have been decreed, it seems to indicate that there is a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And I had somebody tell me several years ago when I was preaching out of the same passage, so you're one of those Schofield Baptists, aren't you? That's dispensationalism. No. But I want you to understand something. Long before Schofield ever put that into his notes, back early in the third century, Hippolytus, one of the early church fathers, was writing about this prophetic gap between week 69 and week 70. This long predates Reverend Schofield and his study notes. Then people want to know, well, why then, if God was telling Daniel all this stuff, why didn't he explain what was going to happen between the end of week 69 and the beginning of week 70? That's the question for the ages, folks. Now, I can't give you the answer definitively, but I can tell you what I think. So let me do that. There are desolations that have been decreed. There are things that have to happen. There are events that must occur. And after the departure of Christ, we know some of the history of what occurred within the church age anyway, do we not? The spreading of the gospel, the day of Pentecost, and and then the persecution that came, and Christians fleeing in every direction, and most of them were Jews, but they began to carry the gospel. And there was this one guy by the name of Paul. We knew him as Saul when we started out in the story, but then he became Paul, and he began to preach to the Gentiles, and massive numbers of Gentiles began to come in to the church. And time is flying by and all of these things are happening at the same time. It seems as if the world is trying to fall apart the best that it knows how to. But the Apostle Paul makes an interesting statement. In Ephesians chapter 3, 
And I just want you to listen to these verses, all right? Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. What Daniel was not told was that the anointed one is not just for Israel. But the anointed one is going to be granted to, given to, and shared with all the nations. And certainly what Paul wrote has come to pass since the end of Jesus' ministry. And it seems to set the stage for the beginning of this 70th week at any time. Now, I just look up there and I see the time and I think, well, let's rush to the finish, shall we? At the end, got your Bible open still? Daniel chapter 9. He. He. The he is the big question. The he at the beginning of verse 27, that's the big question mark of this entire vision. He. Who is the he? My conviction, not only from reading Daniel, but from reading Daniel, reading other prophecies, and reading the book of Revelation, is that the he is the Antichrist. He. And look what he will do. He will confirm a covenant with many. Who are the many? Israel. For one seven. So we're into that last seven weeks. The 70th week. In the middle of the seven... He will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. In the middle of that last seven, the peace that Israel has known, the renewed and restored worship at the temple, it's all going to end. In that last three and a half years, it's going to be a time of idolatry and sin and the degrading of God's people and the house of God until God himself brings judgment upon them because he sees fit to stop it. Now, as as simple as I can make it. Let me get this down to finish, can I? Maybe we're right. And maybe we're wrong. I know a lot of people are consumed by trying to understand prophecy. Maybe you're one of those people. If you are and you say, well, he just didn't do that justice, I apologize. But I want you to understand my purpose is not so much to get caught up in the matters of the details of the prophecy and whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong or whether you're right or whether you're wrong or whether we agree or whether we disagree as much as I am trying to get you to the nugget that's down there in the middle of the prophecy that I'm going to tell you. Don't miss this. 
The anointed one will come. Messiah has come. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has come. You see, in in Daniel chapter 9, what we're reading is the gospel. God has a plan to redeem mankind, and it includes this coming of Messiah. The one who would take our sin upon himself, go to the cross and pay the price for it. The one who would abolish sin, establish righteousness when he died upon the cross. Our time now is not to sit and worry about the prophecy and whether we've got it right or we've got it wrong or whether we agree or whether we disagree. Our purpose, our cause, our mission, our commission as it has been given to us is to make disciples by sharing the good news with all we come in contact with that the anointed one, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus and he offers forgiveness. He offers redemption. He offers life. I know because I've experienced it. Many of you are looking at me and grinning and nodding your heads because you've experienced it. But if you haven't, my friend, it's yours for the asking this morning. He invites you to come. His Spirit calls you to come. The Son of God draws you to Himself. Have you come to Him? Do you know Him? Is He your Savior and Lord? If not, today. If you feel that sense of drawing. Understand everything that has happened in the past. Everything that will happen in the future. It all rests upon this one hinge. The coming of Jesus. The paying of the price. That's what our lives hang on. One day I'm going to take my last breath. And I have absolutely no fear of it. It has been said many times in the past. It will be said many times in the future. So allow me to repeat it. When the day comes that you hear of my death, don't you believe it. Because at that moment I will be more alive than I have ever been before. Why? Because I've met the anointed. His name is Jesus and he gives life. Would you like to meet him this morning? Listen. If you're here and you say to yourself, I, I don't know this Jesus he's talking about, and I'm not sure about this whole thing about eternal life, I want you to hear me. God loves each one of us. And he has a plan for our lives, but that plan begins when we come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. That means we have to repent of our sin, turn from it. We have to admit that we're sinners. And we ask his forgiveness and invite him Ask him, plead with him to wash us clean and make our sin like it never was there. And then we let him take control of our lives. See, it's not just that he saves us, he's our savior, but we make him the Lord of our lives. We give him absolute control over who we are and what we're about. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I've never done that. 
I want you to know that today, today you can become a child of the King. If you're not sure what to do or what needs to happen, I, I want to invite you in a moment when we stand and begin to sing, would you just come take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I want that relationship. I want to be a child of the King. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I'd love to share with you from the Word of God how you today can become a child of the King. Perhaps you've wandered away, gone your own direction, done your own thing, and you know you need to come back into line with him. Today, would you tell him that? Would you just surrender to him again and say, Father, I've made a mess out of my life. I want you to straighten it out. I have no right to ask, but I know you love me and I know I'm your child. So I'm going to ask you to do this for me. He will. Doesn't mean there might not be some consequences. Maybe a little bit of discipline. I can recall many times when I've been taken to the woodshed by God. And he straightened my life out. But I would rather experience that discipline and be right with him than to miss that discipline and go my own way. You let him show you what needs to happen in your life. And whatever he shows you, let him do what he needs to do in your heart, in your life today. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation, of commitment, of surrender. I, I want to give you the opportunity. As you've heard the Word of God, perhaps you've been hearing the voice of God, and, and the Spirit is drawing, He's calling. You know that there's something you need to do. Maybe you know what it is. If you do, I invite you to do it. If you don't know what it is, talk to God about it right where you are. Just ask him to reveal his plan, his purpose, and his desire for your life. And as he does so, you be obedient. Whatever it is, we want to encourage you to put your life in his hands and let him direct your paths as he sees fit. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Sometimes difficult, sometimes confusing, sometimes hard for us to get a handle on, but always true. And Father, we pray for your wisdom, your insight, your discernment, so that we would understand your word. But above everything else, I pray that you would help us always to point to Jesus. To Jesus, the hinge of history. Half of the story is the fall and the lostness of man. But the other half of the story is the glorious redemption and salvation of mankind because of your wonderful plan. Father, may we point everyone to Jesus. This morning in this room, there are some who need to call on you for the first time. Father, I'm confident of that. I pray that you would draw them. It does no good for me to to plead, to beg, to cajole, to, to prompt them, to play on emotions. No. It's for your spirit to convict and convince and draw. And I pray that that would happen. Lord, there's some of your children in this room who've, who've gone their own direction, done their own thing, and, and today your spirit is speaking to them. Father, I pray that you would welcome them back home, that you would invite them to come. Father, there may be some public decisions that need to be made in this room, but there are also many who simply need to have a conversation with you that maybe is long overdue. So, Father, direct us.
Show us what needs to be done for each one of us as we sense your leading, as we hear your voice. Help us to be obedient. Father, have your way and be glorified in our midst, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.